You made it. <laughs> you made it to the end. You're the marathon runners of this. Yeah, nice. Very good. Well, this is when we wrap things up. And so I'm glad that you are here and glad that you made it. We're going to, I hope, be very, very encouraged tonight because we're going to look at a couple of the, the final topics, final questions, and then we'll be, we'll be completely wrapped up on our series, which is amazing, amazing to believe because it feels like we just started. So let's see if I can, there we go, get the clicker working. As we've discussed every week, we've, we've been covering, we are covering nine difficult questions, and tonight we're going to do things just a little bit differently. The first question we're going to cover is how heaven will mitigate our suffering here on earth, just that eternal perspective and how much that absolutely matters in terms of putting all of this that we've been discussing over the last four weeks into perspective. And then our final question is, sort of the all-encompassing one, why does God allow evil? And we're going to get to that as well in sort of a different way. And then following our break, as I said last week, we're going to, I think, have some significant time to do some live Q&A. And so we'll give you an opportunity to ask any questions that you may have. So let's dive in and review just a little bit from last week. So last week we talked about how valuable is free will really when you really boil it down and anyone what did what did we what conclusions did we come to what kind of things came up as a result of that discussion It is it is valuable yeah and uh, not just not just from our perspective but from God's perspective as well right So we talked about some of the maybe objections you could say that could come up of, so why can't God do this or why can't God do that? What were some of those? Do we remember? Questions like, well, could God just, you know, make it so no one ever does any evil, right? Uh, could God do that without our knowing? Could God be, you know, could he work through providence and just sheer chance and coincidence? Could God prevent more suffering, right? And course, that presumes that God isn't preventing more suffering, that he's not actively working in the world, right? So again, all these sort of lead us to the conclusion that, yeah, free will is valuable, and especially from God's perspective, because he is unwilling, it seems, to overwhelm and override our free choices to prevent more suffering, even though that's not really what he wants, but what he wants more is for his creatures to freely choose a relationship with him, to freely give him uh, hit their loyalty and their worship rather than being compelled into it. So our second topic, what good is the suffering that I endure? First of all, is there any good to the suffering that we endure? Yeah, for sure. Bless you. So we talked, we spent a lot of time specifically on this life, this earthly existence. So can anyone recall a couple of the things that we discussed in terms of the good that suffering can, can bring about in this life? What are some of the things that it, it does or can do or that God intends for it to do? Yeah, please. You certainly learn from it. What kinds of things do we learn from it? Yeah. We certainly learn to depend on God more, or at least that's God's goal in, in allowing suffering, right? That he, he allows his children to be disciplined because, because he wants us to, to turn to him. He wants us to depend on him. Yeah. 
What else comes out of suffering in this life? Yeah. Yeah, how we respond. If nothing, can you imagine what would it be like? What would it be like if nothing bad ever happened to Christians? Right? Well, first of all, what would our what would our growth be like? There wouldn't be any growth. Remember the trees in the bio, in the biosphere that never got any wind? They didn't put down roots and they just fell over. Not only that, who wouldn't be a Christian? Right? But would it be real? Again, the whole thing is God certainly, I mean, God promised uh, that we would suffer. You know, Jesus said, I certainly suffered. If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to suffer too. But there's, there's certainly a, uh, a purpose behind that. So any other thoughts on the suffering that we experience in this life and what it brings? Yeah, Tony. I think one, one thing in our group that we talked about was the ability to uh, have compassion and empathy for others. You know, going through that yeah. suffering like you're talking about in Christian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we're supposed to be a body, if we are really brothers and sisters and we're supposed to treat each other as family, and we're going to talk more about that tonight, what I go through is not wasted pain if it allows me to be able to then minister and encourage another brother or sister who's going through something similar or even maybe the very same thing. I am uniquely equipped because of my suffering to be a better encourager, a better witness, and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, there's lots that comes out, and that's just in this life, right? And we also touched on this idea of gratuitous suffering, and we didn't say necessarily, we can't rule it out, we don't know that there is no such thing, but there was a couple questions that sort of came up of, these are things we need to think about or ask when it comes to this, this topic. Does anyone recall what that was? When it comes to this sort of notion that there are suffering out there that's just absolutely, positively, God has no good reasons for. What should we think about that? Yeah. We, how do we know that, right? Yeah, we have no idea. How, how likely would we be to know that God does or doesn't have good reasons for any given thing that occurs? We simply don't have the equipment. We don't have the tools for that. And so while it doesn't rule out the possibility, it certainly means that we should be a little less dogmatic about being so sure that there's absolutely no reason that God could have for that. How would we know, right? So, again, we won't really touch on this tonight, but if this is the first time that you're with us or if this is the first of these podcasts that you're watching, you know, you're probably the person that likes to eat dessert first. That's fine. You're joining us on the last week. But just to say, if you go back, there's going to be some heavy stuff. So uh, just be aware of that. So first question for tonight. How will heaven mitigate our suffering on earth? And honestly, I feel like the best way to go about this is let's just look straight at Scripture because there's so much of it, actually. And so we're not really going to do much else other than just look at a bunch of Scriptures. I really want you to start to just get pieces and hints of all the different aspects because we tend to think of heaven in certain terms of, you know, physical comfort, of, like, not needing anything, not having to work anymore, doing these things. But there's so much more to what heaven will be and just even what it is conceptually that we, I think, should consider when we start to, to look at this whole picture. So first and foremost, and this might be a duh, but one of the most important things about heaven is that it will be new. We don't really think about it. You know, we, like, there's this tendency to, you know, think about, well, I'm going to go to heaven when I die as if, 
this is, there, it already exists, and when I die, I'm going to go there. But Scripture actually says that heaven, our ultimate place in God's presence, does not exist yet. It, it does not exist yet, and neither does the new earth. In Revelation chapter 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. God is not done creating. And, I mean, Jesus even said this to his disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, you know, so that, that there's work yet to be done on behalf of, of his people. And so whatever we think of in terms of this world and, and even what the immediate experience after death might be, the ultimate end is going to be different. It's going to be new. It's not, there's going to be continuity, but also discontinuity uh, between, between that. So just something to sort of kick us off with. And again, this might be a duh, <laughs> but I don't think we really grasp how key and, and much of an impact it will be just to realize that God himself will be there, living there in, in the new heaven and the new earth with his people forever. Revelation, again, chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. All the times that you and I have felt like God is distant or hidden or in the midst of suffering and pain where it just feels like we're talking to the wall when we're praying, it just doesn't feel like God is there, heaven is going to be a place where that feeling will never, ever occur because God will be there physically there and we will be able to see him and to interact with him and to experience him all the time i mean just just think for a moment about how much that would change things even right now if you were able to go and just be in god's presence like really like and fully experience his presence uh, in a way that we just are not able to do right now that's going to be amazing <laughs> that's going to be amazing to just say like well let me Let's go talk to God. Let's go talk to God. Like, let's do that right now, right? I mean, just, gosh, that's so hard to wrap our heads around. But that's a huge piece. Like, of course, God will be there. But, man, what does that really mean? Suffering will cease. And this is the big transition from this experience in this life that we, that we feel now, right? We've read this passage, it's a very well-known scripture, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And also in, in Revelation chapter 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. All the junk will be gone. And the only people who will be left will be the people who are, have been made fit for a place like this, who, who God has made fit and who are ready for eternity and who think righteously and act righteously and do righteously only. And we're going to be amongst those people. No more drama. No more, no more taking advantage of people. No more treating people poorly. No more pushing people down to get ahead. And all that will be gone. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a place where no one treats anyone like that ever? Where everyone only has the other person's best interest at heart? I mean, this is, that would be incredible. That would be incredible. 
And, and this is what scripture says it will be. Like all of that other stuff will be gone. And we won't, we won't ever experience that again. This is a huge one when it comes to suffering. Justice will be served. There will be no one who has ever inflicted suffering or pain on anyone who's going to get away with anything. Justice will be served. You and I, if we suffer as Christians, we will be vindicated in front of everyone before God. And God will make sure that every, every deed, every word will be, will be uh, judged, that, that justice will occur, right? And we see this even in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What would it do to just rest in the fact that whatever's happening to you, even if it's at the hands of someone else, if you're experiencing something unfair, or if you're being treated poorly, or if someone's just, I mean, frank, of bullying, or, or just pushing you down, there, that all that's not only gone, but that you can just rest and say, I don't have to be vindicated here. I will be vindicated one day. Right? That, that no one's getting away with anything. Nothing's going to escape God's notice. Nothing's going to get swept under the rug. That justice will be served. All the stuff that, that we talked about on week two, the terrible, terrible things that people have done to one another, it's all going to get what it deserves. And there is something that is, I mean, there's a righteous joy that comes from that, I think, to just know that God's going to take care of business, right? And that we, we will get to... As, as odd as it might seem to us now, we get to enjoy that, that God's going to reverse all that. He's going to, you know, enjoy all those reversals. He's going to make it all right. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to turn it all over. Everything's going to be exposed for what it really is. And that will be an amazing, amazing thing to be part of. It will be a paradise. Revelation chapter 21 again, and We've talked about this before uh, several years ago, but just this idea that just the construction itself is going to be jaw-droppingly beautiful. The wall of, uh, this, of, the, of the city of Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. So not only will this be an amazing place to be, every need will be taken care of, and it will be perfect, right? We won't want for anything, because God will be there. All of our needs will be taken care of. No stress, no anxiety of like, I gotta get it done, I gotta, I gotta make ends meet, I gotta, it's, it's done. We'll be able to finally rest and relax and not worry about what's next. Two more. And these two, I think, are the big, uh, sort of the big, big ones that maybe we don't consider too much, is that we will reign over the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this ties directly into the next one, and I'll sort of talk about these together, is this concept that we, were gonna, we will be God's family. And I know that maybe we have some idea of that or we, we've talked about that where we're the children of God. I don't think we're fully grasping what that actually means when the, when the writers of the Bible are talking about it. Let me, let me do a little bit of contrast for you, Old Testament to New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, 
we, we have this, this uh, phrase, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, this is the Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. The Hebrew is B'nai Elohim. These are spiritual beings, God's heavenly counsel that he is delegating responsibility and roles to because they are the sons of God, right? They are his sort of his, his right-hand uh, beings. can't say men because I don't know what they are, but yeah. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And then later in Job, chapter 38. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So again, uh, humans weren't around when God laid the foundations of the earth, but the, the spirit, spiritual beings, his creation, were. They are referred to as the sons of God, right? Now, this is why, this is important. Did you know that in the Old Testament, the plural phrase, B'nai Elohim, the sons, plural, of God, only ever refers to these spiritual beings? Only. Let's contrast that, because in the New Testament, we see things like this. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That would have been a radical thought when Jesus said that because sons of God in the Hebrew mind only ever refers to God's spiritual beings, his heavenly counsel. Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. One more, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 29, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I want you to get what's happening here. Because in the Old Testament, and this is way far afield of what we were talking about tonight, the youth can tell you more about it because we're talking about it right now. But this idea that there were some sons of God who rebelled. In Psalm chapter 82, uh, God is yelling at them for being corrupt, for not, for not doing the job that God delegated to them. And so the task that you, the, the, the reversal that you get in the New Testament is, get this, God had, you know, there's God at the top of this heavenly hierarchy, and then there's these sons of God. They're the family. And in the ancient world, you have this, you know, it's the royal court. You have the king, and who's immediately under the king? Well, his family, right? Because that's who gets the, that's who gets the cushy jobs, is the king's family. And then underneath him, you have the bureaucracy who actually helps administrate the kingdom. Those are the angels, right? Well, guess what? What does it say we're going to do with angels in the, in the kingdom? We're going to rule over them. We're going to judge them. What does that mean? It means we outrank them. Get this. The original, some of the original sons of God, they rebelled. We, we are re going to replace them. We become, we are, in fact, currently, the new sons of God, his sons and daughters. We are the family with the cushy jobs. We are the ones who God says, you're my people. You get to be, you're going to be with me. And we're going to do this together. I want you to think about this idea because we don't think about heaven this way. Yes, we'll reign over it. What does that mean? It means this. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And then do you know what the picture is? He turns around and he gives it to us. He says, this is yours. You take care of it. 
It's the same thing as Eden, right? It's just the whole concept of God gives, you know, he creates Eden, he puts Adam and Eve in it, and he says, now go and make everywhere like this, right? Now, they don't do that, but in the new heaven and the new earth, well, everywhere will already be like Eden, but God's going to hand it to us, and he says, this is yours. You do, you do with it what you want, because I know that whatever you do with it is going to be good, right? Because you've been made fit for this. This is the task that you were prepared for. That is what we're going to do forever. We're not going to sit around on clouds and play harps. We're going to be put in charge of a whole new creation. And God's going to say, you, you're my family. Make it awesome. It's awesome. Make it more. That's incredible. That's incredible. So don't ever think for a second that it's going to be boring. We're going to have a lot to do. We're going to have a lot to take care of. We're going to have a lot to work with one another to accomplish in the new heaven and the new earth. And again, this is just a small, small, small piece, some breadcrumbs of what is in Scripture about what heaven is going to be like. But here's the point. If all that is true, if all the suffering is gone, if justice will finally be served, if all the wrongs will be righted, if we will be given that kind of a role and responsibility in heaven, if we are God's family, heaven is going to dwarf everything that you and I experience in this life into insignificance. In other words, to really answer the problem of evil, you have to talk about heaven. You have to. If heaven isn't part of the equation, I don't, I don't have an answer for you about why all this happens. But if heaven is where this is all headed to, well, then we, can, we have exactly the answer for why all of this occurs and why all this happens. Because, again, Paul referred to it as light and momentary affliction, not insignificant. Because this is preparation for that role, right? That responsibility. But in the grand scheme of things, we're going to look back on this life and say, oh man, that was, was nothing compared to where I am now, what we're doing now, what we have been tasked by God with doing. So only in the context of heaven does all this make sense. And that's sort of why we saved it for last. But it all leads, it all leads to this. Now, a question that's come up because there's some, there's some, I guess, debate about, or if, you know, if we're thinking about these things, is we know, because Scripture tells us, there won't be any sin in heaven, right? And last week we talked about free will and how that's so important to God. So there's a sort of a natural question, or at least for some people a natural question that's come up, is to say, well, okay, we know that there's no sin in heaven, but then... Does that mean that there's somehow going to be this conflict between whether there's going to be sin in heaven or you know, whether we're going to have free will in heaven? And is that going to be limited in some way? Because if God's going to guarantee that we don't sin, that another fall doesn't happen, like doesn't he have to... I mean, we can't do whatever we want, right? Because we know that we're capable of sin. So how is that going to work? Well, here's a thought. What if... What if God figured out how to have both? Just hypothetically. What if God figured out a way to make sure, to guarantee that there was no sin in heaven forever, and yet that you and I were completely free to do whatever we wanted in heaven, but God knows we will never, ever, ever sin? If that's the case, then we should ask the question, so what would that require? Right? If, if God was able to pull that off, what would he need in order to do something like that? I think there's three things. 
And again, this puts our suffering and, and the problem of evil right into perspective for us once again. The first thing that would have to be in place for God to guarantee that we could, do, we could be free in heaven but never sin is firsthand experience. What do I mean by that? We would, it would not be sufficient for us to simply have a theoretical knowledge of sin. And, and that, you know, rebellion against God, it's bad, don't do it. That while God never desires us to rebel, he never desired this, that he knew that, he knew that it would happen. And God is wise enough to be able to weave that right into the grand design to say, well, it's actually a necessary thing. You know, I know they're going to rebel because they're not me. But it actually prepares them for what's next. Let me illustrate it this way, and I've used this before, to say, uh, I have a, a four-month-old right now. Should I hand him a pen or a fork or a knife or anything like that? I would be a negligent parent if I did that. Why? Because he'll do something real dumb with it, right? He'll probably poke his eye out or something horrible, right? Now, you can hand me the same thing, right? In theory, is it possible, logically, for me to poke my eye out with a pen? Yeah, of course it is. Will I ever do it? No, because it's dumb, and I know better, right? I understand that, like, self-destructive things are stupid. And, it, and people who are thinking rationally never do self-destructive things. Well, in heaven, we're going to be made whole. We're going to be thinking clearly, really, for the first time ever, fully. We won't have sin nature to deal with. We won't have any of these things, right? We will see sin for what it is, stupid and self-destructive. And so only, only someone who's not thinking clearly would do something self-destructive, right? I will never, ever, even though I could, put a pen in my eye. And that, I think, is how we would look at sin. Not because we know it on paper, but because we've lived a lifetime of seeing that sin and rebellion against God is stupid. It doesn't lead to anything good. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of others. And I know firsthand it's never a good idea. It always ends in heartbreak and suffering and sorrow. So no, I won't freely choose it. But it would require something else, I think. And this is where I think, again, I don't think that God is... is I, I think you can certainly justify hell on its own terms, as we talked about a few weeks ago. But just in case, a couple million years from now, anyone was able to look around and say, in heaven, you know... Uh, was sin and rebellion against God really that bad? Was it really that bad? Guess what? We're going to have an eternal object lesson that we'll be able to look at and go, oh yeah, oh yeah, it was that bad, right? It was that bad. We will never not have a reminder of exactly how bad, not just from our own experience, but from the ongoing rebellion and, and things that, you know, that is in hell of exactly how bad sin and rebellion against God actually is. There'll be an object lesson forever for that. And then one more, and we've already sort of talked about this, meaningful work. We, we need purpose. We were created to do hard things. And in God's presence, when he hands us a whole new creation and says, it's yours, have at it. That, my friends, is some meaningful work. 
I mean, I don't even know where, I wouldn't even know where to start with you, but we're gonna, we're gonna have all of eternity to figure it out. And it's going to be amazing. So, if that sounds like something that's interesting to you, this whole concept of free will in heaven, but no sin, there's a really long, uh, boring paper called this, uh, Free Will in Heaven, Reconciling Libertarian Free Will in Heaven with Eternal Sinlessness. It was my master's thesis. I actually wrote it on this exact topic. If you don't mind the academies and you're willing to slog through 40-some-odd uh, pages of, of peer-reviewed research and all that stuff and, and scripture references, here's my email. Uh, just send me, send me an email. I'll send it to you. I have a PDF of it. So just throwing that out there. If you want to read more on that, if that interests you. Also, if you would like to cover just more about heaven in general, about three years ago, I did a Sunday sermon when we were back at Basha called The Hope of Heaven. And while I'll say this, it's aged okay. I would argue with myself about a couple things now. <laughs> but generally, I still would agree with most of what I said there. So I can, I, I'll still recommend it. But you can go to our Oasis AZ YouTube page, or you can just search The Hope of Heaven Oasis AZ on YouTube, and you'll find it. It's about an hour. It covers more of the details of some of the things we glossed over and then a couple other things and some of what we've talked about tonight as well. So there's a little more information for you there. So that brings us to the final question. Why does God allow evil? And for this, I think you already know. So here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to tell you why God allows evil. You're going to tell me. Or actually, you're going to tell each other. So here's what I'd like you to do. Please get in groups of four, or as close to groups of four as you can manage. And in the next several minutes, we'll give you several minutes to do this, I want you to do this. When it comes to answering this question, why does God allow evil? I want you to take turns in your groups and give your elevator pitch. Who's heard of an elevator pitch before? So what, what does that mean? What's an elevator pitch? Yeah, right. How long is a typical elevator ride? Like 30, 60 seconds? Like a couple minutes if, you, if you're on Elf and he just hits every button, right? But let's assume it's not that, right? So like 60 seconds, just in, from your perspective, based on what you've soaked up, based on what you've learned from all the different questions that we've covered, you, you answer it. How would you put that into your own words? Why does God allow evil? Someone asks you that, how do you answer? Because I think, I think we all know. So after that, we will uh, take some time and chat just to get some of your, your basic thoughts. And yeah, any questions? I'll take your silence as a no. So let's go ahead and we'll, we'll just have a little bit of music and we'll do some discussion time. So get in your groups and answer the question, why does God allow evil?
Take about two or three more minutes, two or three more minutes. All right, we'll go ahead and bring your discussions down to a close. So, hit me. Pot, we'll just do short, short answers, just little bits and pieces of what you discussed or said in your groups from your, your elevator pitches. Why does God allow evil? Yeah, because that's a natural consequence of creating creatures with free will. Yep. Comes with the territory. What else? He loves us too much to, to compel us, right? Freedom is a great good. A great good. And God loves us too much to take it away, even though it causes pain sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, we're not the only beings who God created with free will. And God loves them too, enough to allow them to make free choices. Right. Why else? Please. Yeah. 
Yeah, God allows evil because he wants us to freely uh, worship him and to choose that even in spite of maybe some pain and suffering or obstacles, right? But that, again, God could overwhelm us into obedience, but that's not something God's interested in. Uh, C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't remember the quote right now, but I think in the screw tape letters, he wrote something to that effect from the perspective of, of you know, the, the demons in that book. Basically, this, this idea that um, our mission, meaning the, the, the de- demonic mission, is never more in peril than when one of God's creatures is in the midst of suffering and ter- turmoil and pain, and in the midst of all that, decides that they're going to listen and obey anyway, right? That's a huge thing, because that's, that's the purest form of dependence and, devo- and devotion, right? If nothing bad ever happened, it, it would be easy, right? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. God actually it allows us to honor him by being able to make those free choices. Right. Yeah. For sure. So quick show of hands. Before these past five weeks, when it came to these nine questions that we've talked about, how many of you would say that you felt not necessarily confident, but you felt like you could have some sort of conversation and, and hold your own in answering all nine of those questions. Would anyone have said, would say that before, before this? Okay, maybe one or two. How, may, how about now? Does anyone feel like they can, can have that conversation about any one of these questions and, and feel more good? Okay. That's the point, and that's why I wanted you to talk about it now, right? Because the, if you leave here going, Man, Steve really, really knows how to answer those questions. That doesn't, that doesn't help you, right? Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't help you, right? The point of this whole thing is that it, it becomes yours, that you internalize it, that you leave here knowing how to answer these questions. If, if, that's, if that's the case, then great. Then this did what it was intended to do. So that said, we're going to take our break. And during the break, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different because we didn't have homework last week, so I'm going to impose just a little bit. During the break, uh, I'm going to give you some time to do this. It should only take a couple minutes, but we've done everything digital up to this point, so I'm going to continue that. If you have your smartphone or if you're able to even just get on a browser, and if someone has a smartphone and is not sure how to do this, if you're around them and can help them, that would be fantastic. And if you're not able to do it right now or tonight, that's fine. I'm going to wait a few days uh, before I sort of close the polls. But this is the evaluation. And it's just about, I think, eight or nine questions. It should take you a couple minutes to just give some feedback on what you liked, what you, what you enjoyed, what, what you learned from the most, maybe some things that you would do differently if you were going to do this again, and, and to also gauge some interest level in this kind of a thing not just for this, but for maybe other, other topics down the line. And in addition, since I, I try to do this every time that I, I teach something related to a topic, if you're willing to share your email address with me, and again, it's just purely for the purposes of me being able to reach out afterwards, I'm going to be giving away several books on the problem of evil. 
If you're interested in being throwing your hat into the ring to be one of the people who could be drawn to for one of these books, uh, I think right now there's there's maybe two or three that I'm considering. But if I draw your name because you, I have an email address, then I will reach out to you via that email address, and I'll give you basically I'll give you you know two or three options to choose from. You'll tell me which one you want, and then uh, I'll get it on Amazon and I'll have it shipped to you. Okay, and I'm probably going to give away, like I said, maybe two or three of those. Uh, there's a few different, there's some that are more academic in nature, there's some that are more uh, popular level, and so on and so forth. So I'll let you, give you some options if you, if you get drawn, and you can take your pick. Because I'm not above bribery to get some feedback. So <laughs> uh, that's, that's where we stand. So it's time for our break. I'll, I'll leave this up here in case you want to scan it. Uh, but let's do this. Take eight minutes, add to whatever you have right now, and we will uh, meet back in here. So you can grab some refreshments. Fill out your eval, do whatever you need to do, and we will we'll be back here in eight minutes. So we are ready to move into the last little bit here, which is live Q&A. So a couple things just to sort of lay some groundwork before we, before we do this, because I don't think we've ever done this before. So some technical things, first of all. I'm gonna, I have two lovely volunteers who are going to be, who are going to have some of these uh, <laughs> microphones here. Yeah. My, my Vanna Whites. Mike and Mike. Right. And they are going to be, they're sort of going to own each side of the room there. So <laughs> we're going to try it this way, unless or until we get horrific feedback. And then we're going to try it a different way. <laughs> but in the testing before, it didn't seem to, it didn't seem to have any issues. So, so first and foremost, if you're on either side of the room, just kind of flag them down, and they're going to do that. And we'll just kind of go back and forth. If, if, that's, if there are enough questions to do that, we'll just pop back and forth. Second thing, if you are holding it, if, if you're not used to holding a microphone, if, first of all, if you can just sort of keep it under, like, under your bottom lip, under your chin area, that's fine. You don't need to put it right in. And then also hold underneath there's a little like star clip a little colored band around it if you hold underneath that you should be okay bad things probably won't happen if you just keep your hand under this so so in terms of technical we'll go with that so on the on the logistical side of things we'll just do it this way if you happen to have more than one question let's just try it this way please ask one question at a time and then let's let other people who haven't asked a question yet ask their questions before we come back around to your second question. Fair enough? Okay. All right. Also, last thing. I am going to right now uh, reserve the right to say I don't know to anything that you ask me, okay? This is not Bible answer man time. So I'll just, uh, I'm going to try and sit up here without spilling coffee. And this may or may not work. No. Let's just, let's just nix that. It was a good idea. It worked well in my head. Okay. I'll just, uh, I'll just do this then. So, any questions about anything that we've covered or anything else that came up over the course of, of the last five weeks? Right, I do such a good job that no one has any questions. Okay. All right. First one's over here. All right. Right below my lip. There you go. Um, you know, something that you touched on a little ancillary uh, tonight was uh, about judgment, justice. God is the God of justice. 
And one of the things that came up in our group discussion was, um, you know, we know that we all sin. And as believers, you know, hopefully we're mindful of, uh, you know, God's commandments and we obey them. But from time to time, somebody slips up. Right. So on, we're talking about, will the Lord see us because we are people of uh, faith and believers uh, on judgment day, on that day of justice? Mm -hmm. Will he be bringing out all of those uh, uh, mistakes that these individuals have made? Or will it be for the non-believer who's made a lot of mistakes yep. but never repented of those mm -hmm. mistakes and has not accepted yeah. the, the salvation that Jesus offered up for all of us? Good question. And I'm glad that we're all mics because that means I don't have to repeat the question before we go ahead. So let's look at some scripture. In Revelation, I think it's chapter 21. There's two, two different places I would go. not be uh, let's see it is Revelation 20 I'm sorry Revelation 20 and we're gonna start in verse 11 John writes then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books plural that's important were opened and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we get a contrast here that the picture seems to be there's multiple books which apparently contain everything everyone's ever done, right? And then there's a single book that's open which is the book of life. So you have two things going on in this passage. One is sort of stop number one is the book of life, right? Is your name in the book of life? If not, then you are judged based on what's written in the books, based on your deeds, right? So the picture that you get there is that it is, and again, this is everyone, everyone is raised for this judgment. So it's not just believers who are raised for this, it's everyone who's ever lived, no matter how they died, right? In the sea or wherever. And the idea there is with this idea of books is whether they're literal or not, is that God doesn't miss anything. God hasn't missed a single thing that anyone has ever done throughout their entire life. So the picture is that unbelievers are going to be judged based on what they have done, but believers are going to be judged based on the fact that their book is written in the book of life. So the contrast is this, actually everyone's gonna be judged based on works. The question is, are you gonna be judged based on Jesus's works, or are you gonna be judged based on your own works? And if Jesus isn't your substitute, and it's not his works that are sort of your stand-in, then the only other works that are left are your own, right? And so that's, that's that. Now, let's jump to another passage because that's not to say that there is, no, there is no 
sense in which Christians are judged for their deeds. It just doesn't have anything to do with judgment. So go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll start again in verse 11. So Paul is in the midst of talking about a conflict in the church at Corinth about people taking sides of like, you know, these Christian, uh, even back then, this whole idea of like Christian rock stars, like, well, Paul's awesome, well, Paulus is awesome, and Paul's like, none of that matters. None of that matters. And he starts to go on to say that, you know, God is the one who brings the increase. It doesn't really matter who builds. But he says in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there's no other foundation that can be laid for salvation that doesn't involve Jesus. So everyone's building on that. But then, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the idea for the Christian is not that we don't have to worry about what we do, but that what we do takes on a completely different context, right? And the idea is that for us, we're not working to merit or earn something as far as salvation goes from God or favor or anything like that. That's, that's Jesus' work. But that what we do post-Christ as a Christian does have an impact on the level or amount of reward that we will receive in heaven. So... The things that we do that, that don't ultimately matter, that waste time, that don't count for eternity, they're going to be burned up. And those won't earn us or, or merit anything for us in terms of our future responsibilities in heaven. But the things that we do here that have eternal significance, eternal value, the investments we make with each other, the kingdom work that we do, it will directly impact the amount of reward that we have in heaven. So we said that like, we are all going to fit into that category, sons of God. That doesn't mean that we're going to have equal levels of responsibility and roles within that category of sons of God. So some of us may have more or less responsibility than others because of what we did here, how faithful we were here. And this is where the parable of the talents comes in, right? In one version of that, the servants who were faithful are placed over cities, which I think is interesting given the context of what new heaven and new earth will be like. So yes, we'll be... Uh, we will be evaluated based on our works, but we won't be judged, if that's a distinction that we, we can make there. Yeah. 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 So on the topic of um, what if they had never heard the gospel, uh, considering the, the Old Testament, mm -hmm. those who predate Christ, mm -hmm. and uh, other than the pantheon of faith in Hebrews 11, who do you suppose in general would, would be in heaven? Yeah, what, do, what do we do with the Old Testament believers and that kind of thing? So I think, I think it's helpful to define our terms in terms of what, what, do we, what do we mean when we talk about believing, right? And, and we can look at Abraham as an example because in Genesis 15, 6, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteous. Well, what did Abraham believe about God? God made a promise to Abraham and Abraham essentially said, like, if you said you're going to do it, then I, I trust that you can do what you say you're going to do, right? And there's this idea, too, where you get, like, uh, David. We'll take David as an example. David did horrible stuff. 
He was awful, right? But the one thing David never did was worship other gods. You know, I mean, he, he committed adultery, and then he had the husband killed. He was a murderer. He did all these terrible, terrible things, but David never worshiped another god, and he's called a man after God's own heart. So in terms of an Old Testament perspective, and I think we can even apply this to New Testament, if we define, what do we mean when we say faith? Think of it this way, believing loyalty. Uh, and this is not my term. Uh, there's scholars like Mike Heiser have used this, but this, this idea of meaning that from the believer's perspective, there is no other God, there's no other uh, being that I look to, that I rest in, that I depend on other than Yahweh, right? He's it. He's, he's the only game in town, one-stop shop. There is no one else. And if that is your perspective, then in the Old Testament, Yahweh made promises to his people. He made promises that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. He made promises that he would redeem his people, that he would that he would preserve a remnant, that he would do all these things. And so the question then just comes down to, when, when Yahweh has spoken, do we believe that, that, is, that what he said is what he will do, period, because of who he is, and is our loyalty in no other? And that's still true, I think, in the New Testament, if we're going to take that and sort of apply it, that except instead of looking forward to what Yahweh would do, we're looking back on what he did, right, through Jesus. So to say that, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, do we believe that when he said that, that that is true? You know, period. Even though it is for us chronologically in the past, and that when it comes to our salvation, Jesus is it. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved, right? That he's it, and our believing loyalty is only to him. So if we're to be put on the spot and say, well, why, why? Why do you deserve to be in God's presence? The answer is Jesus, only Jesus. There is no other. There's no other, there's no other answer. There's nothing else that I can give, right? So even though there's maybe some discontinuity there, I think there's more than we would think, is that there, it's believing loyalty in Yahweh and only Yahweh. And that's still true for us today. It's just that we're looking back on the fulfillment of what all that was leading to. But people were saved the same way in the Old Testament that they are in the New Testament, I think. Any over here? Okay, yeah. When um, God tells us that all of our sins are washed away mm -hmm. and he never brings those up again, that has nothing to do with the deeds at the end that he judges us on? You mean the 1 Corinthians 3? thing that we just looked at? Yeah, I don't think so, because those are referring, in 1 Corinthians 3, he's referring specifically to the, the things that we have done that have eternal value or not as a Christian. He's not referring to anything that, that Paul would say, your former way of life, the former things that we did, right? Those don't come up at all, as far as we can tell. It's, there's no, nothing in Scripture about that, right? So, no, it doesn't have anything to do with... Our, our sins, those are, those are paid for, right? And 1 John 2, 2 says that actually everyone's sins are covered if they, if they just would choose to believe in Jesus, right? So yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with our, our deeds in that way. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, one over here. 
Um, question is, natural e evils or disasters that kill many. Um, why does God allow this? Since God created nature, are these disasters God created uh -huh. evils? So we're thinking like tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes, right. those, all those stuff. Yep, totally. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal from a, a apologist, Ravi Zacharias, because he, he's answered this, I think, really, really well. And he just sort of steps back and he frames the question in terms of, so when we're talking about like a tsunami, for instance, and it is horrible, but I don't say it. It's interesting that we only, we only ever call those things evil either when they have to do with people or they're about a person, right? So in other words, there's an island, let's say the Philippines gets, gets smacked by a hurricane and a lot of people die, right? If we were to take that same hurricane, same scenario, and translate it to the middle of the Pacific Ocean on an uninhabited island, would we call that evil? No, we wouldn't, right? We wouldn't call a volcanic eruption on an uninhabited you know, archipelago, archipelago off Iceland evil, because there's no one there to experience it, right? So, and in fact, when you look at certain natural phenomena, we'll take like earthquakes, for instance, from what I've been able to read about it, like scientists have, have said, some geologists have written that um, actually earthquakes are hugely, hugely important to the normal functioning of the planet. Because what they do is they actually, uh, they till up minerals that are buried very, very, very deep below ground and they bring them up to the surface and they actually completely replenish the soil and allow it to continue to produce plant life and things like that. And if earthquakes didn't happen, with some regularity, uh, eventually like, plant life would just run out of mineral nutrition at the, at the, toward the top of the surface and we, plants wouldn't grow anymore. So again, I would be hesitant to say that things like earthquakes are a direct result of the fall. Frankly, we don't know. We don't know because I don't know if enough time passed or what. Like, I, we're just not told. I don't think scripture is necessarily interested in answering that kind of a question. But the point being is, if it doesn't have to do with people, we wouldn't call it evil. So the human death is certainly, uh, it's bad, and it's not something that we would want. But I don't know that that makes the, the natural disaster itself uh, evil, right? It, it could very well be wrong place, wrong time. And actually, I'll, while we're on this question, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example where we can actually look at a natural disaster and the, the badness, the suffering and the evil that occurred as a part of it is actually much more directly related to human moral choices and free will than it is actually natural disaster. And again, I'll, I'll have to preface this because what I'm not saying is that this particular thing was, you know, a specific act of God's judgment. I don't, I don't know that at all, so I can't make that statement. But just by way of using an example, uh, when... Katrina happened, and the levees burst in New Orleans years ago. So you look at that situation, and you go, okay, so here's, here's the facts on the ground. This is a city that is known to be below sea level, that is known to be in a floodplain, that is known to be in the path of where hurricanes historically have and historically probably will occur, and where levees were built to withstand a level hurricane, I think it was two or three, when hurricane level four and five are known things that we know exist, right? It's not like a four or a five had never happened before. We know that they exist. We know that they can happen. And so people have chosen to build a city below sea level directly in the path of historical hurricanes with inadequate protection. And then, and then when something happens, 
Everyone, it's like, why would God allow this to happen? Like, well, you, you chose to live there in that place, and it, it wasn't adequately, it, it wasn't built up to par, right? So the, the, choice, the free choices of people led them to be in that place when such a thing occurred, and I'm not really sure that it is fair to lay that at the feet of God uh, because there's free choices involved, right? So there's one, ex one example of sort of how that natural evil and moral evil can overlap a lot, yeah. Another one over here, yeah. Um, can you hear me? Oh. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, the one thing that I was struck by um, right smack in the face is the uh, passage of uh, no one is righteous, not one. And for some reason, I thought that there was, in my own mind, there was righteous people. But I was thinking about going to work and saying something to some of the people that I work with, and I thought, if I tell them that they're not righteous, they're not going to be very happy with me. So I guess that's a bad place to start. Tact is certainly important. <laughs> yeah, tact, tact is certainly important. But I do think that, you know, I mean, if they're not, if they're not even particularly religious people, I think we can, we can use language that can make the same point, but maybe in a way that's more tactful. For instance, we could say something like, I don't believe that people are inherently good. So there's a lot of people out there who would hold that position to say, oh, I think people are inherently good, right? And you would be simply making the statement, I don't believe that that's true. I don't think people are inherently good. I think there's something fundamentally flawed with people, right? And then if there's any kind of reaction to that statement or if there's any kind of pushback, what do you mean? People are inherently good. Well, all, you all we have to do is start looking at the evidence, right? Which is what we kind of did, is to say, well, let's see, does, does human history bear out that people are inherently good or that people are inherently bad? And if you look at the evidence, and like we only looked at 100 years of evidence, but you'll see time and time and time again that it's not just isolated pockets of people. It's not just a couple bad apples. People, humans in general, were very, very quick to do terrible, terrible things to each other with sometimes very little justification, right? We don't even need that good of a reason to, to demonize another group of people, to do terrible things to them. So I still think you can, you can make this statement, but the way you frame it is say maybe, maybe the opposite of, do you think people are inherently good? And if so, like why? What reasons would you give? You know, because it, it's, not, it's not our intentions that make us good or bad, right? It's our actions. Let's look, at the, let's look at what people do, not what people wish that they did or wish that they uh, could do. And what we actually do is, is not good, not at all. So is that, does that help? Okay. You could make the argument that if you just drive on the highways out here, you would find people are inherently bad. Yeah, yeah. Road rage is a thing that exists, right? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I think... Framing is key, but you can say the same thing a different way, and you might get a little more traction with it, or at least some discussion, as opposed to a no thanks and walk the other way. Yeah. Other. Steve, on the same topic, I was just going to add that you covered that pretty well. I thought, especially with what keeps a lot of people in line are consequences. So if you take yeah. away the consequences in the conversation, you know, how many people do you think are really good? Um, if they didn't right. have to be. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, I don't, 
that's an, I would say like that's an example of something that I, I certainly won't be dogmatic about because I don't, I don't really know what people's motivations are. I don't really know what their heart intentions are. It's certainly possible that, that people really do altruistic things. I'm just highly skeptical based on my own experience and based on history that real altruism exists outside of, outside of being made a new, a brand new creature in Christ. That I, I just think that there's always an angle. And maybe that makes me cynical. But again, like there's a lot of history to back up that there sure seems to always be an angle uh, of what's in it for me, a selfish motivation. That, and it's not even that hard to find it just in speculating a little bit about it. And like one example that I know came up in one of the groups that we talked about is you know the, the, the billionaire philanthropist who gives away a ton of money. Well, that's a real nice tax write-off. And if he's making enough money, there's a really good chance that the government was gonna take that money if he didn't give it away to someone. So even there, it's not hard to find a, a way to be like, well, that's still self-serving. I'm not sure it's entirely altruistic. So again, can't be dogmatic, but you're right. Consequences of what could happen if I don't do this, there's certainly a big motivator and we have to take that into account. Yeah. Any other questions? One here. Um, evil and hell. Uh, we have Hitler, Mao, Stalin, uh, Idi Amin, and other characters like that. Yeah. Uh, the guy that spends his life going around separating widow ladies from their savings and never accepts Christ, does he get the same penalty they get? I don't think so, and, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that just based on you know, gut. I, I think that we can go back to, I think we looked at a scripture related to this on, I think it was week three when we covered hell, just that this idea that people are not going to be judged more or less severely based on, based on what they've done, at least according to, to the scripture that we looked at, because the, the, the fact is, according to scripture, all of our, all of our deeds merit nothing, precisely nothing. So it's not that someone was worse. I mean, you're comparing, you're comparing who's worse amongst all bad people, right? Like, it doesn't really matter. What, what seems to be the differentiating factor for, how, for, for differences in judgment, and I do think there's going to be differences in judgment, is how much light a person rejected. And, and that will vary from person to person. But in our day and age, I mean, there's a lot of light out there. There's a lot that has to be willfully tuned out or ignored just to, just to put your head down and go throughout your day in terms of, I mean, if you really wanted to know more, you, you could. I mean, just the fact that the internet is a thing that exists. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information and, and teaching and truth that's available to people who are willing to seek it. So it's, it seems to me that people are going to be judged based on the amount of light that they rejected, and, and you know, with that, the extent to which they rejected the light that all people are given, right? So we have in Romans 1, creation and conscience. So you take a, take a person like a Hitler or a Mao or someone, what kind of searing of, the own, of their own conscience needs to occur in order to be okay with signing off on all that happened under their watch? 
right? Significant. So, I mean, I, I do think that there's some way in which that sort of overlaps. Of the, the ability to sear the conscience that deeply, that's a, that's a massive rejection of internal light that we've all been given. So, I do think in some way there's some correlation between the kind of people that they were and how much light they rejected because of having to ignore the conscience over and over and over and over again. But, yeah, I mean, there will be differences in judgment. But ultimately, our works amount to precisely nothing without the work of Christ. So the person who doesn't do those things, it's not like they're, it's, we're talking about relative, relative comfort in a place of torment, which I'm not sure matters a whole heck of a lot, but yeah, I, I do think there'll be differences. Yeah. John, you have one? Well, this is a little complicated, I think, but... Um, I love complicated. Uh, it's unusual, I guess. I really appreciate the class, and thank you, because you answered a huge question that I had, which was, um, God already know, you know, the Great Commission, going into all the world and preach the gospel and, yeah. and so forth, and... God already knows our hearts, whether, you know, we went to that island and told that person about, about him. Yep. So then is, is his um, call for us to do the Great Commission, is that a matter of obedience? I, th I think so, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, but I feel like there's something behind that question too. Well, no, I mean, I, I'm just thankful that God already knows who's going who's gonna to seek him and who's not, mm -hmm. and who's going to, um, because he, he, like the song goes, he runs after us. Mm -hmm. So we need to run after him sure, too. Sure, sure. But I just wonder why, you know, he, he does, I thought, well, I don't know. I think it's just a matter of obedience that that we go and tell others about him. So something that you said sparked a, another question that I've heard before that just has to do with this sort of how do we parse how do we parse obedience if free will is part of obedience and the fact that God already knows, right? And just this idea of sovereignty, which I know I've chatted with some of you about here and there, but just for for since we're since we're in this phase right now, I'll, I'll, I'll say something about that because it, I think it does tie into what you're, you're saying here, Joan, is that, so God knows who's going to accept and who's going to reject, and God knows what we're going to do, so how, does, how is it that we still have freedom, right, if God knows these things? And this is where, again, there's those who would disagree with me, but I, I think there's a very good case to be made from Scripture that God's foreknowledge and his predetermining of things are not a cause and effect relationship. They're not linked. And here's an example. If you'll go with me to uh, 1 Kings, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 23. Yeah, it's in... 1 Samuel 23, and we won't read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to give you sort of an overview. You can read this whole chapter 
uh, later. But here's the gist. So David is on the run from Saul. And while he's on the run, he hears that a city called Kila is under attack from the Philistines. And so he inquires of God, should I go up and should I, should I save the city? And God says, yeah, go do it. Go deliver the city. So David and his mighty men, they go and they attack the Philistines. They drive them away and they deliver the city of Kila. And while they're there, they, they stay in the city, you know, recovering from the battle. So Saul gets wind of the fact that David is in Kila, and Saul thinks to himself, well, this is great. I've got David, like he's a fish in a barrel, right? He's in a, he's in a walled city. He can't get out, so I've got him. I'll just show up, surround the city, and that's that. So through the prophet, and we'll just say verse 6 of chapter 23, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Kila, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. And this was one of the tools that the priests would use. You get this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy of how to ask questions of God, usually yes and no questions, most scholars think, of, of a way to determine the will of God and, and ask God questions in the Old Testament. Now it was told, verse 7, uh, Saul, that David had come to Kyla. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a town that his gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kyla and besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kila to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kila surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kila surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Verse 13, Then David and his men who were about 600, arose and departed from Kila, and they went wherever they could go. They scattered. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kila, he gave up the expedition. Now that's huge. Because if you think about what that means is that God foreknew two things that never happened. He said, yep, Saul will come down. And if Saul comes down, the men of Kila will give him up. Well, David's like, well, then I'm not waiting around for that. Let's get out of here. So when Saul hears that David has fled, he, he stops. He doesn't actually come down to Kila. And because he never actually comes down, the men of Kila never actually give David and his men over to Saul. So God foreknew two things that never happened. Now, if God's foreknowledge and his predestining are linked inextricably, then whatever God foreknows has to happen because he's, he's foreknown and, and therefore he's predestined it. So this passage, and there's a couple others, one where Jesus, where Jesus says, you know, he's preaching against uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin, I think, and he says, if what had been done, if the signs that had been in, done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So unless Jesus is being hyperbolic, he's claiming to know what would have happened if something other than what actually happened had occurred. And this is what we see in 1 Samuel 23. So the, the idea is simply this. God does know what people will freely do. And, but that doesn't mean that God predetermines what people do. So it is a matter of obedience. But if God knows that, you know, if God intends to use you to, to carry the gospel to someone, and you decide freely to be disobedient, then God knows of another way to reach that person. So God doesn't lose out, and that person doesn't lose out, but you do, because of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
God gave you an opportunity to do something for, of eternal value, and instead of building with precious metals, you built with wood or hay or stubble, right? It's gonna be burned up. So it's a both and, right? God is able to ensure that that person, and we know from uh, accounts of Muslims who are having visions and dreams of Jesus in closed countries where no missionary can go. God is certainly capable of reaching out and getting people uh, if, if, they're gonna, if they're gonna choose him and respond, right? So he doesn't use us because he has to, he uses us for our sake. Um, so there is, there is a way to parse that, to say that he doesn't, it doesn't predetermine anything, uh, but it is, and so it is important that we, that we freely choose to be obedient. But that's, that's a thing where we can, get, we can get foreknowledge and predestination all tangled up, and I don't think from scripture that you can really make that case. Yeah, yeah please. That very issue, um, I just really appreciated. I had quite a few ahas, but that was one of them, was God's foreknowledge that can go hand in hand with our free will. Mm -hmm. But another thing um, along those lines that I think is really helpful when you're trying to reconcile that in your heart is standing on the character of God. God is, all of his attributes are in equal proportion. He's all loving, he's all knowing, he's all just. He's all righteous. So we know the God that we serve would not stand by and allow someone that if only they heard, they would come to salvation. Because the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-righteous God who transcends space and time and sees all eternity in a single glance yeah. will make sure yeah. that each person that he knows exactly what we'll do from the moment of our first breath to the moment of our last breath yeah will have an opportunity right. to hear and know. Yeah. So you can stand on the character of God as well in addition to this concept of his absolute omniscience and knowing every heart of every person who's ever drawn breath. Right. And that, for me, is a huge aha and yeah. extremely helpful. Well, and, what, and you're right. I mean, I think of what, what Jesus prayed when he said to the Father, like, thank you that out of all the ones that you have given me, I haven't lost, you know, you've made it so that I haven't lost a single one of the ones that you gave me, right? God's not, no one slips through the cracks in God's economy, right? So he's got this. And that goes back to the believing loyalty. Like when God says he's got this, do we trust him, right? Do we believe him? And do we just lean into that? And, and I think, again, there's, there's, a, there's scriptural precedent that we can and that we should. So the only question is, will we, right? And yeah. So it's 8 o'clock, so we can do this. We can take a couple more questions if you want to stay. If you need to get out of here, I totally understand. But, uh, yeah, we'll do that. Any other questions? One more there. Okay. We, we have a friend in Yuma. We have a friend in Yuma that is from Kurdistan. And God came to him. Hmm. And he became a believer. Hmm. And... Um, his wife was over there as an English second language. Okay. Anyway, they live in Yuma now, so it Praise does. God. This yeah. happen. That's exactly. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so if, if you're interested in like that, that's a perfect example. Uh, Craig Keener, he's a scholar. He's written, I, I don't know if it's one or two, but he's written at least one like massive volume on miracles. Because we tend to look at miracles as like, oh, that was, that was all this crazy stuff that God did you know, back in Bible times. 
Well, Craig Keener has gone around and asked, you know, he's compiled eyewitness accounts and examples and, I mean, peer-reviewed data and medical records and all these things to say, like, oh, miracles, miracles are still occurring every day. God is at work. God is active in his world. And, you know, it's just the fact that we don't hear about it. We kind of assume that it doesn't happen. But, like, case in point, it does happen. It does happen. And God is, God is at work. Hey, I have a request. Yeah. Um, going to play the dad card here for a second. Um, because I think it's important that as Christians, we ask fellow believers to be praying for us. Uh, and because you've made a connection with these people or have enhanced a connection you've already had with these people, I would like you quickly, I know you can do this quickly, uh, to share with them a couple of the opportunities you have coming up in the next couple weeks so that they can be praying for you just to let them know what you're going to be doing when you're yeah. where you're going to be speaking so that they can be praying for you about those yep. opportunities I've got one that's Thanks. right you do <laughs> yeah absolutely that's that's good so two weeks from tomorrow uh, I have been asked by a old college buddy of mine we were RAs together in college more years ago than I'd like to say out loud and he is, he's involved in a bunch of different things on the West Valley, but he, one of the things that he does is he teaches at a place called Mission Bible Institute. And so he is gonna be away one, uh, one class that he's teaching uh, on the 21st. And he's teaching an elective this semester on Islam. And he's asked me to take that class for him and to cover the topic for the night is the reliability of the New Testament, specifically as it intertwines with, uh, with the Muslim viewpoint on all that, which is very providential because, what was it, maybe a um, couple months ago now, Regina? One of Regina's coworkers, who is a Muslim, uh, was, was able to, to meet with me, we were able to talk at length for about two or three hours uh, about his perspective and some questions that he had, and so that's, an ongoing sort of relationship that we're, I'm hoping to just pick up every so often and just keep that dialogue going with him. But a lot of his questions had to do with that very topic. And so God sort of aligned my study for this class to sort of coincide with an, an opportunity and relationship that through Regina I was able to, to make a connection there, which is very, very cool. So just continue to pray for all that. And then about a month from now, it's the same day as the church picnic actually, but I knew about it before, so I didn't, I didn't. We, uh, I was also contacted by uh, some, some people who are part of a youth conference who, that occurs on a yearly basis and asked to be one of the breakout speakers up there in the Northwest Valley uh, at a conference called Deep Faith. It's a, a conference for youth. So I'm going to be one of the breakout speakers there, and I'm going to be speaking to the teens on the influence of media and its worldview on our perspective and our worldview and just how to think carefully and critically about the media that we consume because it has a big, big impact. So just kind of walking through what does that look like to analyze and not just listen to songs because of the beat, but to, but to think through what is it actually saying? What is its perspective, its worldview and the movies and things that we, the entertainment that we consume? And just to make them a little more aware as far as that goes. So, that's stuff that's sort of on my upcoming uh, radar, and I, would de I definitely would appreciate prayer for all of that because I think God's 
God's doing some cool stuff, and hopefully he'll use me to, to impact those, those teens and impact the students there at that, at that class as well. So I'll just say this. Thank you so much for, for taking this time. This has a, been a huge commitment on your part to, to be here, to be part of this. I hope that you have gotten out of it what you have put into it, because you certainly put a lot into it. I really appreciate it. I hope to you know, be working on more things like this down the line, and, and so I hope that you'll join me for those when and, when and where those occur. But let me pray for us, and we will we'll conclude our time. God, thank you so much for, for your word, that you've made yourself known to us, that you have revealed yourself to, to us, and God, that you desire a relationship with us. Thank you, God, that you have a plan and a purpose for everything that we face in this life, and that, God, your ultimate desire for us is to be with you forever in a place that is perfect, where we can rule and reign together with you, where we can be together with our true family, and where we can, we can get stuff done, God, free of the burden of pain and suffering, free of the constraints of time and having to worry about sickness and our bodies wearing out and all these things that, God, we can just accomplish and achieve so much for you and that there will always be more for us to do. God, thank you that you have made this available and, and uh, uh, this way available for us through your son, Jesus, that you were not content, even though you were justified in leaving us where we were in our rebellion and in our, in our sin and rejection of you, but God, that you came and you made a way for us through your son, Jesus, that through your death and burial and resurrection, Jesus, that you have reconciled us to you. And that if we believe, if we, if we place our trust and our loyalty in you and only you, that God, you will, you will blot out our sin and that you will make us righteous and that you will make us fit to be part of your forever family, that we will be your children, your heirs to all that you are going to create someday and all that you have made. So God, take us here. I pray that you would give us opportunities in our lives amongst coworkers, amongst family and friends to actually discuss these things that we've been talking about, that, that God, we wouldn't shy away from opportunities to, to speak into this, that we wouldn't uh, dismiss opportunities, but God, that we would be bold, that we would feel your spirit empowering us with confidence to, to speak truth because we've thought about this, that we've looked at scripture, that we understand what you're doing and what your plan and purpose is for us and what it is for them too. So God, I pray that we would be bold, that we would take the opportunities that we're given, that God, that your spirit would lead us to those, and that God, you would soften hearts, that you would make people receptive to hear about the wonderful, wonderful plans that you have for them. So God, take us from here safely. Please use us to further build your kingdom. Help us to, to keep our eyes on the things that are going to be eternally significant and that we would focus our lives and our efforts and our energies on those things. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here, everyone.